We had some technical issues on the show today. This intro was read after the show was over. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Friday, February 4th, 2022. This is episode number 209. I'm Susan Soares, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis' Favorite Grandma, AKA Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Join us and over 25,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. Today we're talking about delivery by Cheech and Chong, the skinny on trade samples, even Canadians know their weed is boof, how we can stop cannabis monopolies, how cannabis is improving quality of life, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. West stepped up as co-producer and took over the show while we were having technical difficulties, and so we will proceed with the show. All right. Well, since we don't really have Susan at the exact moment, I'm going to go ahead and pop in. I hope that we're able to figure out what's going on and get her back here sooner than later. Um, So we're going to get the show started this morning. I'm actually going to go ahead and introduce Mr. Rico Lameet so I can get myself queued up and make sure that we are so ready for this. Um, Sorry, everyone, for our rough intro, but um, I was not prepared. Rico Lameet, dopest dad alive and also one of the co-producers here on the show, founder of Cannavision. What do you have for us this morning, Mr. Lameet? Oh, man, happy Friday to you, Nicole West. Today, I got a story about New York. uh, How this New York cannabis entrepreneur plans to take on huge multi-state companies. So um, adult use regulations haven't yet dropped yet. And New York's already got 10 licensed MSOs poised to win with a healthy lead on the rest of the market. What's worse, they're the only ones allowed to be vertically integrated. Given what's happened in other major uh, markets, small biz entrepreneurs are worried about how they're going to be able to compete. Enter Stephen Fan. Fan's the visionary owner of the cleverly named CBD store, Come Back Daily. Get it? CBD? All right. CBD started with one store in Manhattan on Broadway and quickly grew to five pre-pandemic four in the city and one in White Plains. Due to COVID woes, they ended up shrinking to just one in the East Village. Fan wants to continue operating that store on the THC side as a community-oriented business dedicated to educating customers and removing the stigma associated with the plant. I miss the days cannabis companies had such pure mission statements like that. He plans to apply for a retail license and raise $5 million in a friends and family round after qualifying for New York Social Equity Program. That would cover real estate, build-out, lawyers, government relations, app writing support, and stores of security. Still not enough to compete with MSOs. This is why he and other entrepreneurs through the New York Cannabis Growers and Processors Association plan to create a network of businesses across the supply chain vowing to work with each other. In the article, he said, We have to create this, especially among those um, that have been in the industry prior to it becoming legal. That's the only way we can compete against these larger ops with unlimited money. Fan says the way it could work is nursery supply new plants to farmers and the network connects farmers to distributors where they'll have a guaranteed outlet at retail stores. He said they'll split up his own CBD team uh, so each can lead a business along the supply chain, making a group of companies that know and trust each other. There's no money exchange here. We're just looking we're just taking pure business flow. We're not trying to create a monopoly. Businesses will be owned separately and we just know that we're within the supply chain where we can support each other. A wise New York man once said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. 
look, I truly do miss the days in California where we trusted each other and had a reliable connection across the supply chain. It was awesome. The problem was we legalized instead of descheduling or decriminalizing first and in came capitalism. And that motherfucker's known for his hands. That $5 million, even if you do raise all of it, won't be enough to fight off the billions backing MSO lawyers arguing that you are creating a monopoly. Pretty sure Flo Kana tried to do something similar to this. And uh, good luck either way to Fan and the NYGPA. I hope the movement gains steam and maybe New York's fate will be different than ours. Buster Douglas, he did come out of nowhere. This is Rico Lamit, Dope Dad on the Street for State of Cannabis News Hour. Back to you, Nicole. What you got for me? I think Susan's back. Susan, can you, can you, are you with us? I'm here. Okay, good. Am I here? Woohoo! It's about time, Susan. I don't know what happened. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, I had to restart everything twice. Um, So, Nicole, you introduced Rico. I'm going to introduce you. Okay, uh, up next is Nicole we don't West. Have, we, we, she, we don't have any, uh, anybody want to respond to that? Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Actually, actually, I want to jump in here. I think the New York, this sounds like a, a model on a dairy cooperative, and the New York State Dairy Association has some excellent um, models in that regard, so maybe this can fly that way. I'm not sure. I have hope. I know that the New York State Growers Association has been um, really forward in working with the New York state government as far as trying to get um, some leverage in the industry before they get smashed. Hey, did we get did we get Omar in here? Did uh, did we announce that Omar's opened an office in New York? Our very own Omar Figueroa. Yeah, Omar. Omar with the hands. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yes, we have expanded uh, to New York State and opened an office in Brooklyn. Oh, no, Rico. I think that guy is betting on a pipe dream. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's all altruistic and everything. It sounds like everything we heard from every operator back in like 2016, 2017, until motherfuckers found out that somebody lifted the cap on cultivation. Guess what, Rico? I know how that movie ends. With how many sequels? <laughs> <laughs> we'll move on to Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis, a veteran in the cannabis industry and always ready to use her experience to guide others. The show wouldn't be what it is today without her expert leadership. Nicole, what's your headline today? Uh, thank you for the lovely introduction, and who needs coffee when I got to think on my feet like that first thing in the morning? Um, I am actually bringing a headline from Time Standard, and I would like to say this headline uh, is in regards to trade samples, but I also want to discuss R&D on a, a very genuine level as well. So cannabis lawyers discuss new laws for trade samples, which I would like everyone to understand is not the same fucking thing as what R&D is. And there seems to be a big misunderstanding in the cannabis industry currently where the heady boys will tell me, oh, we're going to take this for an R&D sample and go take dabs of it. And the reality is that's actually not what fucking R&D means. The R&D samples actually are intended so that you can send a sample to a testing facility without all of the rigorous oversights of the way that we have to go through a traditional certificate of um, when we go through a standard COA. So this is actually something that I want to make sure that I'm making very clear that the difference between trade samples and R&D is that R&D is actually for real life testing with a lab and trade samples are after it's been completely COA'd and at that point you are able to give away free product to people so that they're able to try products. Okay. So the Humboldt County Growers Alliance is in partnership with the Origins Council hosted a conversation on Thursday surrounding the compliance with the new state guidelines for cannabis trade samples and medical cannabis donations. The Humboldt County Growers Alliance and Trade Association represents 275 licensed cannabis businesses in Humboldt County, recently joined the Origins Council as a regional partner for state and federal cannabis advocacy. The Origins Council also represents Mendocino Cannabis Alliance and the thirty um, and the Trinity County Agricultural Alliance and the, the largest member-based cannabis advocacy organization in the state representing nearly 900 licensed cannabis businesses in California. Trade Samples are making a, a marketing tool that allows for farmers and manufacturers to share their products through the supply chain, not to consumers. DLAP says Trade Samples allow 
allow for products to be tasted, smelled, sampled, and enjoyed by licensed buyers such as distributors and retailers prior to 2021. This allowance did not exist within the legal cannabis framework. Before the passage of Assembly Bill 141 in 2021, there was no way to designate cannabis products provided from one license to another for a marketing purpose of a trade sample to avoid cannabis taxes, according to Omar Figueroa. Founder and principal attorney for the law offices of Omar Figueroa, one of the leading cannabis licensing regulatory compliances firms in California. AB 141 and new language of the business and professional code, as well as the revenue and taxation code, were created to produce uh, the ability for trade samples, Figueroa explained during Thursday's presentation. The Par- Department of Cannabis Control has adopted regulations pertaining to trade samples, and beginning January 1st, AB 141 exempted trade samples from cannabis taxes, including all harvested cannabis that will be or has been designated as a trade sample, all harvested cannabis that has been issued, used as to manufacture a cannabis product that has been designated as a trade sample. In addition, the cannabis excise tax does not apply to a cannabis product designated as a trade sample. That is given to another license without consideration. Um, As a cultivator, one can provide trade samples to any cannabis license except the cannabis event organizers, transport-only distributors, and testing laboratories, Uh, Middleson explained. One can receive trade samples from manufacturers, distributors, or other cultivators and microbusiness authorized to engage in cultivation, manufacturing, or distribution. When it comes to medical cannabis donations per Senate Bill 34, cannabis retailers can donate free medical cannabis products to medical patients or cannabis licensees may donate free medical cannabis to cannabis retailers for subsequent donations of the medical cannabis patients without payment of cert- or certain taxes, according to Figueroa. Now, I just want to make sure that everybody does understand the three different variations of what we're talking about here. We're talking about trade samples that are products that have completely passed through COA. Those COA products are then completely labeled and ready for market and completely compliant in order to be able to be sold. They are then designated in our metric track and trace system, as well as with a naming convention, and then distributed as a trade sample going to a retailer, it would still come as a wholesale manifest because whole, everything that goes to a retailer will still always be registered in metric as a wholesale manifest. And the donation products will be designated in metric as a donation. It'll put a little Christmas box next to that number. And at that point, you'll also bring a tax form that will show that you are promising to donate these products to medical patients. If at any point you do sell that product to a medical patient, there will be a red flag in your metric account. And the DCC and also the CDTFA will reach out to you with a kind slap on the wrist the first time, an exceptional fine on the second round. So I'm Nicole West reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Well, Nicole, you, you know what I'm going to ask, right? I, I don't. Let's, let's run it. <laughs> Why accept cannabis event organizer licenses? Because it's not intended for um, people to uh, give away to, cu- to customers. It's intended so that people can decide whether or not they want to purchase products or work with customers, work with people. So it's uh, the intention of the law um, was not the event organizer is to bring all of these other people together. An event organizer will never actually be in possession themselves of the product because the event organizer has to work in con um, in uh, contribution with the distributor as well as a retailer in order to sell those products. So the only way an event organizer is ever in possession of any products is in conjunction with a distributor and or a retailer. So you as a, or at any event organizer, they never actually have a location to store product. That is not the place. The location to store the product is the event. And the only way to actually properly store it is with the distributor housed there. You know, while I appreciate the ability to give retailers samples now, which we had to just basically manifest full-size samples last time, that's great. But I still feel like we need to go further and be able to sample to customers. Other places can do it. If you went to a winery in Napa or an, uh, an alcohol event, wine tasting, beer tasting, it's totally normal for folks to have sample sizes to uh, give to customers. You know, the products I love to create tastes like cannabis. So people are like, oh, just give you an uninfused sample. An uninfused sample is not a cannabis product. And I do think that it's kind of like stinks of cannabis shame that we can't sample consumers at events or even dispensaries. Likewise, I just feel like we still need to figure that out. Yes. Be with the gems. You still can do like with a cannabis event, you can still do a, a process where would be able to, you know, sell it at a, a very discounted price at an event to a consumer. But yeah, you're totally right, Guy. We should be able to offer it to the consumers as at events as well. We're, that- we're bringing in more taxes than alcohol. We need to be treated better than alcohol, not worse. 
Yeah, true that. And, you know, just as an example, you know, Emerald Cup last year, we got slapped on the wrist because we were getting a little over our skis. I am going to admit my guilt. I gave away some samples in line and already those products we're getting reports that people are going to dispensaries asking for those products. Like it is a function that works that every other industry can do. We should be able to do it. We have to trust adult use people when they come in and they're 21 and they want to take this sample. I do believe samples should be properly labeled with the milligram dosing and go through compliance testing, but we should be able to give away stuff. And yeah, you can sell it for a dollar at the register or pennies at the register, but sometimes it's just not as as easy and we should just be treated fairly you guys know absolutely what I'm we're and we're at time on this headline but i wanted to give lenita a few seconds and lauren a few seconds before we move on thanks susan this is lenita um i just wanted uh, i haven't read the article but i will i'm hoping that um omar has spoken to the fact that this is not new we deal with this in the regulated market around pharmaceuticals and medical devices all the time where um, R&D products, and thank you for that excellent explanation, um, where R&D products are taken by our salespeople, our marketing folks to trade shows and try to give away or uh, otherwise allow companies to use uh, inappropriately. And so if we're going to do that, then the argument is this is not this is a regulated product. It is regulated within that state like wine. So I think we need to make the case um, for the fact that it is more like a regulated product since it's legal in the state than an unregulated product. And so it's not an R&D. We should be able to do it. And that's all I have to say on it. In California, trade samples are allowed um, for purchasing decisions to help the licensees make purchasing decisions. Um, even though the regulations do not allow cannabis event organizers to use to participate in receiving trade samples, I disagree with that because, you know, if you're a cannabis event organizer, you could be trying to curate a cannabis event. And in order to make those purchasing decisions, you have to see the trade samples. It really means that um, you now have to pay for it. Where would they manifest them to, Omar, is the only the caveat to that. They don't actually have a metric license as a... Uh, uh, oh, there's event. ways to do it. They could go pick it up at the distributor. You know, um, I right. mean, basically, once you give the trade sample to a licensee, they, they no longer have to, like, keep it on site. There's no regulations that require... You know, you can give it to your employees, and then the employees can use them in their own personal time to make the purchasing decision. There's no requirement that they have to be on duty while they're consuming cannabis. No. As a matter of fact, the regulations say you can't be delivering or saying, transporting cannabis. I'm saying as like a distributor, if a distributor was working, if it, or as a, an event organizer, an event organizer would be working with a distributor in order yeah. to, so in that statement, they could get it as long as their distributor requested them saying, hey, I want some samples so that I can share with my event organizer. So the distributor at that point could get them to them. There's just in the well, way of... Not under the current regs. Under the current regs, somehow the maybe the distributor would designate the event organizer as an employee, and then right. I guess under the guise of being an employee or the, the distributor, they could get them. Right. Okay. We're we're at the end of the end of time for that. Wait, story. wait. We, we promised Lauren a few seconds. I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, I'll be super Lauren. quick. Um, and that was I just wanted to point out something that is worth paying attention to is there's limits on how the amount of trade samples that each licensee can provide in total each month, as well as that each licensee can provide to each licensee. So you're limited to how much, you know, per retailer and then for all retailers, for example. And so uh, take a look at that. We've all right. So up next, she is a metaverse cultivation hater, well known for bringing that drama-free data that we love oh so much here at the SOC News Hour. A cannabis educator, brand strategist, healthcare consultant, and founder of the Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara County. Up next is Liz Rogan. What you got for us today, Liz? Good morning, everyone. Happy Friday. Thank you for tuning in. Um, today I'm talking about powdery mildew, which is a story in the real world, hopefully not in the metaverse yet. My story today comes from MJ Biz Daily by Matt Lammers. The headline reads, Canopy vows to forge forward, says no mold issues in marijuana greenhouses. On January 18th, viral posts on social media depicted cannabis covered in powdery mildew and reports of employees wearing respirators. Canadian producer Canopy Growth acknowledged that images circulating on social media depicting the cannabis plants were taken at their Smith Falls, Ontario facility. 
Mario Castillo, who's the vice president of manufacturing, said the photos of Canopy's cultivation operations were taken completely out of context, saying a Christmas weekend irrigation system failure in a small number of rooms was the cause. This product had already been slated to be destroyed and that there were a few fairly upset cultivation employees at the Smith Falls facility, as this reflects on the rest of our employees who do a great job. Castillo addressed the images circulating on social media, an inspection for mold at its now-closed greenhouse in B.C., which was in 2019, and the work that goes into Canopy's new product lines. So first off, Canopy does not have a disproportionate problem with mold at their greenhouses in Canada. The occurrences of mold are part of running a large cannabis company. They are between they grow between 100 and 100,000 and 120,000 plants at any given time, plus the clones needed to sustain the network of plants and others for R&D. So PM or powdery mildew is part of growing. Beating each other up is not good for this industry, he says. If everyone's crop failures were brought to light, the industry wouldn't move forward, and canopy is moving forward. He says it is possible to grow premium cannabis at scale despite the significant problems producers have had. Premium cannabis at scale is possible, but like everything, has a learning curve. Previously, Canopy had a powdery mildew scale with levels one to four, with four being bad and one being barely noticeable. But in 2019, the company um, took care of this powdery mildew concerns and no longer uses a powdery mildew scale to grade it. Pipeline of new products is uh, the pipeline of new products. They're doing research and development, um, which involves breeding powdery mildew resistance into new strains. These risks, innovation, and R and D is needed for new strains and product development. And he says Canopy's R and D efforts are what allows the company to be able to introduce a new cultivar in roughly four to five months, instead of uh, often up to a year. They did have a BC Tweed mold inspection, which was from two complaints. They were highlighted at 2019. It's from a greenhouse that is now shuttered in Aldergrove, BC. And the report stated that mold was identified in the facility's drying room, but no penalties came from this. Canopy ultimately closed the greenhouse for other reasons. But he says particular facilities were not meant for growing cannabis. And therefore, when you look at environmental controls and conditions, it's difficult to create the right environment. And while greenhouses are being retrofitted, you're learning to cultivate at scale. You're going to have a lot of crops that fail. He said those particular crops were destroyed, and he's not aware of any injuries to any canopy workers stemming from the incidents. This is part of agronomics, as we know, and R&D is so important. Crop changes do require, uh, do have a lot of challenges, and strain selection is very important. We dealt with this issue in Santa Barbara County, uh, going from a lot of greenhouses that were growing cut flowers to cannabis. I'm sure some other cultivators might have things to say on this. And I'm Liz Rogan, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Sounds like moldy corporate boof to me. Uh, de- definitely true, but also I will, you know, I'm definitely not backing up Canopy on, on most levels, but I will say um, they're not wrong. And when you build facilities at this scale, I'd say it'll take at least three to five years to fully work out all of the different types of ventilation issues that you're going to have, uh, hot pocket issues, different spots that you're going to, I mean, this is something that is not, every type of agriculture that goes to this scale battles and deals with, we're just becoming you know, very genuinely um, attached to this, the idea of connoisseur product. Um, When you look at any scale of any product like this, there's a great deal of product that comes out, you know, with damage. And if you look at any of these major agricultural products in California, um, anything is covered in powdery mildew. Um, You look at any of these items, broccoli, green leafy lettuce, uh, spinach, kale, all of it has fucking PM. And so like, I'm not saying, uh, you know, canopy growth is doing a fucking great job, but I am saying one, shitting on each other because of growth struggles is a real fucking piss poor move. Uh, but also two, having the, the reality that when you build something that big and that scale, like, yeah, you're going to have fucking problems. And of course it's going to be corporate boof. You're not wrong, Anna. <laughs> you know, uh, the powdery problem- mildew, powdery mildew was, uh, in, in my neighborhood in Long Beach, the whole neighborhood, we had p- powdery mildew on everything, plants that you wouldn't yep. think would get yep. anything. It, we, we were covered in powdery mildew last year. 
yeah, the difference between broccoli and cannabis is that you ingest cannabis and your stomach has um, protections against that, certain protections, but when you smoke it, your lungs don't. Absolutely. But also uh, powdery mildew has um, a very short shelf life as far as uh, how long it can live. Um, it does need certain types of moisture. So even if the plant itself did have PM, if properly dried and cured, um, the ability for that, that actual mildew to die and there not be those same spores is, is real too. Fuck powdery no, mildew. No, no. Fuck powdery yeah, not wrong. Um, I'm getting Oscared, and I actually have to go next to introduce Mr. Jason Beck, the longest-running retailer in cannabis history, the industry's very own Kaiser Brose. What do you have for us today, sir? Oh, good morning, Nicole. Uh, thank you so much for that warm introduction. Today, my headline, yep, watch out or you will get blurped. The Georgia police officer arrested for selling marijuana while on duty in his uniform. That's right, everybody. The Georgia Bureau of Investigations have arrested a Georgia police officer who they say sold marijuana while on duty in uniform. Leon Mitchell, 32, worked for the Warwick Police Department near Albany in South Georgia. The GBI Southwestern Regional Drug Enforcement Office said undercover agents were able to obtain marijuana from Mitchell in Worth and Lee, and Lee counties. Agents arrested Mitchell at, at the police department and searched his vehicle. Agents found marijuana scales and plastic bags inside of his car. Mitchell was arrested on two counts of sale distribution of marijuana, one count of possession with intent to distribute marijuana, and four counts of possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony, three counts of violation of, of oath of office, and two counts uh, use of a uh, communication device during the commission of a felony. The investigation will be turned over to the district attorney's office when it is complete. Now, this troubles me in so, so many ways. First of all, who in the fuck is going to walk up to an officer sitting in a squad car in uniform and buy weed? And second of all, if I'm a smart cop and these guys try to bust me like that, I'm telling them that I fucking busted someone. I just didn't make the arrest. And that's all the evidence that I see is from the individual. So I don't get how this thing is going to play out, but I'm definitely going to follow along. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Jason, didn't you try to teach people? I, I seem to remember at a High Times event, you had a cop car photo op. Wasn't, didn't you do yes, that? Yes, we did do that. We had a, <laughs> we had a LAPD officer with an LAPD car uh, doing photo ops where people could jump in the back and smoke, smoke the car out and take a picture and send it as a postcard yeah. to all their friends. You tried up. to tell them. You tried to warn people, and they didn't, see, they didn't listen. You know, you can bring them to water. You can't make them drink. Well, from my perspective, it's Exhibit A in why prohibition is a catastrophic failure. When you have cops in uniform selling marijuana, you know, that just like really it's time for Georgia to get up to the 21st century. Okay, so I have to tell you guys a story. When I was in Ireland, I went searching for hash. I found some hash from a guy that I met at a or his friend sold me some uh, hash. And then five days later, I saw him in police uniform and he looked at me like I was a fucking crazy person and walked away. And I was like, did that just happen? So two days later, I went in and I was like, is your friend a cop? And he's like, uh, so I bought weed from a cop once. I didn't realize it was a cop, but also he didn't bust me. He's actually just selling weed. Shout out to different cops. They probably seized it. Absolutely. hundred percent. Does this not like does this not remind you of like we used to be like oh ask people if they're a cop and they have to say they they are or not? That's an urban legend. That by the way, you know that cops. Yeah, that's not that. that's not true. Thank you. Yeah, Omar. exactly. That's fake Thank news. Thank you. From a lawyer's mouth, it's not true. They don't have to fucking tell you. Cops are legally allowed to lie. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that for everyone. It's the American way. So moving moving on. Our next correspondent is a master of divinity, jurist doctorate, graduate tax scholar repping Georgetown Law, focusing on cannabis and psychedelics. She's also a taxivist, working hard to expand safe access to the masses. Up next is Victoria Litman. Don't be afraid. If we ask you, are you lit, <laughs> man? Um Man, hard to follow that cop talk. Wow. Um, my news today is out of Maryland's 
State Capitol, Annapolis. The headline is Marijuana Legalization Bill Announced by Maryland House Leadership. Uh, Yesterday, lawmakers introduced a measure to legalize recreational marijuana for adults that supporters say would put the state on a path for an equitable cannabis industry if voters approve it next November. The bill would create an implementation plan based on findings from their House Cannabis Referendum Workgroup um, and their House Speaker announced in a news release. He said, while I feel strongly that the voters should decide this issue, it is the General Assembly that is charged with making sure we have a legally defensible, equity-driven plan in place should the people choose uh, legalization. Uh, That was House Speaker Adrian Jones, a Baltimore County Democrat. The bill sets out to address criminal justice and public health issues and also build a foundation for social equity in the industry, the Speaker's office said. Um, Marylanders deserve to have their voices heard at the ballot box on the question of legalization, but we cannot move forward without an implementation plan that addresses our immediate priorities, said Delegate Luke Klippinger, a Baltimore Democrat uh, who chairs the House Judiciary Committee. He says with this legislation, we'll be prepared with a comprehensive policy that creates uh, the most equitable path forward. The bill would allow Marylanders to possess up to one and a half ounces of recreational cannabis without penalty. Possession of over one and a half ounces of cannabis and up to two and a half ounces would be reduced to a civil offense rather than a misdemeanor, meaning possession of more than two and a half ounces would still be criminal. The article doesn't say anything about home grow. Uh, The legislation also would automatically expunge the conviction of anyone previously found guilty of simple possession of cannabis if it was the only charge in the case, uh, which is a good start, but I don't see why someone who has a paraphernalia charge for cannabis shouldn't also have their record expunged. Uh, The bill also contemplates that anyone currently held in a state prison or local jail for a cannabis conviction, however that ends up being defined, would be resentenced to end their term of incarceration. The bill also calls for a study to collect data on patterns of use, incidents of impaired driving, impacts, so pretty standard stuff, and a disparity study would be conducted to create a more equitable regulatory system and identify barriers to entering the industry. And they would also create a cannabis business assistance fund for small, minority-owned, and woman-owned businesses to help people disproportionately affected by marijuana laws. Um, The Senate's also been working on an approach, and so they're going to be working on their own implementation framework and the article ends, we will not send this to a referendum without having a clear idea as to what things would look like in terms of the actual regulatory framework, said Smith, a Montgomery County Democrat. The regulatory framework has to be sussed out before we send it to the voters. So I definitely appreciate the sentiment that it might be good to think fully through a regulatory framework before a bill is passed. And I think we should be thinking the same thing at the federal level, especially given how slow federal agencies are. Um, obviously, as more states go adult use on the East Coast, the pressure on the last few holdouts is in, is increasing, but also the urge for them to be first to market. You know, we used to see New Jersey, New York, who's going to be first? Like, no one cares anymore, you know? These states are going to be last. So that might be why states like Rhode Island and Maryland are focused more on getting it right than doing it fast. Um, but I'm really excited, personally, for a day in the next few years where the entire Amtrak Northeast Regional will only go through legal states Um, We're so close. I think it's three states, Delaware, Rhode Island, and Maryland. So I'm happy to share this news. Would love to hear from any Maryland people out there or anyone else who has thoughts. Um, I do think it's good news, um, but I've also said previously that I don't think the future of cannabis should revolve around building up these individual state markets because interstate commerce will totally uh, shift how the market operates. So I would love to hear from my fellow correspondents, anyone else out there. Do we think that Maryland has a future as a leader in cannabis or any other thoughts on this news? Looking forward to hearing from you. I'm Victoria Littman reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. The Amtrak idea is great. I love that. Um, I, I, I would like to take an RV across the United States and uh, be able to take my medicine with me, but that's not possible. Just, just to clarify, like even if it were illegal in all individual states, that wouldn't necessarily mean it was legal to take it on the interstate commerce. No, I know. Or, no, no. I just, yeah, just not legal advice disclaimer, but no, right, I'm with you. Right, right. I'm so with you. I would I could think a smoking lounge on the Amtrak, amazing. If we were allowed to smoke weed on the train on the Amtrak, Joe Biden's head would explode. <laughs> yeah, over his dead body for sure. I mean, deschedule or his body dead already. <laughs> Nicole, change your badge yes. to that that yes. Biden sleepy meme. Joe, sleepy sleepy Joe. All right. Well, we've we're past the half hour mark, so we're going to relight the room really quick. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. 
The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. All right, we're going to keep smoke in the news, and by smoke in the news, I mean up in smoke in the news. I'm going to go next, if I can find my story. Here it is. Uh, it's uh, in Green Entrepreneur, and the headline is, Cheech and Chong will bring weed straight to your door, maybe even in person. Really? As the OG of celebrities and weed, it's no surprise that Cheech Marin and Tommy Chung are legally in the game. Both have individual cannabis lines along with a joint venture, but that's just the beginning. On February 1st, the stoner comedy duo launched a new delivery service in California, Cheech and Chung's Takeout, which promises that customers will receive their orders in one hour or less. How are they going to do that, Nicole? And really, if you're going to trust anyone with getting you your stuff. It's a company branded with the two guys who drove around in a van made out of weed. The most important aspect of any operation has to be the pedigree that it brings, Tommy Chong, who also played a hippie store clerk in that 70s shows, told 48 Hills, if you want a good legal firm, you check around and see who's got the best reputation. If you, if you want a surgeon, you do the research and find the best doctor for the job. So when you're dealing with cannabis, getting the pedigree that Cheech and Chong bring to the field is so valuable. Um, he said, we didn't want to just open up a store like MedMen, making it look like more than it is. A lot of people used Willie Nelson or Bob Marley's names, but they're just musicians that get high, he said. So it's not by accident or greed that we're in the position that we're in. And now, with everyone at home during the pandemic, our decision to do the delivery service was so natural. It's out of time. Wow, man. That's some heavy shit, man. Hey, man. Am I driving okay? I think we're parked, man. This is one celebrity brand that I think I'm going to want to support. What about you guys? I mean, I don't know. Those guys are from the 70s, and the 70s weed was not good, so I'm not too sure. They're just comedians who get high. Yeah. Tell us about the 70s weed, please, <laughs> Susan. These guys are a bit before my time. I don't know about this. Susan didn't smoke weed in the 70s. I did not. It's, or the, or the 80s. 80s. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Yet another celebrity brand, but these guys have been in the game since before everyone. So I hope they succeed. I they, do. They hope haven't been in the Johnson. game. They've been actors. That's not. That's not being in the game. Chong was the in the game after he got busted by the feds. In the time, he did become quite outspoken in, in, against federal. Yeah, prohibition. bro. But that was, that was for shipping bongs. I mean, come on. But but he carried the culture. We we wouldn't be like arguably would not be where we are yes. today. For the shit that Cheech and Chong, I can I, yes. can I can accept that I can accept that, but saying that you're, they were in the game, I'm I'm not too sure if I buy that. You're not movie. wrong that he carried the culture, but also there's a big reason why everyone thinks that we fucking sit around and like drive one mile an hour on the side of the fucking road looking like apples. And, and that 100%, culture, Nicole. And that culture, Nicole. Great point. Yeah, great point. My dad, my dad worked on a project with Tommy Chong. I got to meet him. He built a hybrid dragster and he came and it was Hippie Motors. It was a really cool project and he's a really fucking rad dude. And don't get me wrong, but I don't like people thinking that I'm a fucking lazy stoner. And that is the beginning of what that yeah, culture looks yeah, like. Nicole, I used to feel the same exact way. But also now that we're trying to get, I, I wrote a book and tried to get distribution for my book and we're doing a new show and we're, we're running into problems with distribution for this new show. These these guys were breaking barriers in the 70s that I, just it, how did it even happen how did they get their their movie out entertainment it's it's straight entertainment yeah exactly it's, it's, and it's not them it's, it's, it's not them that got the movie out susan it's i'm sure it was harder they got the movie out i'm smoking some of their weed i'm gonna get a delivery 
Well, I mean, you do smoke outdoors, well, so I guess that's appropriate. Oh, you. Oh, my God. Oh. Outdoor rocks. All right. Well, we're uh, probably at time on that headline. Thank you so much, Susan. And I feel like we've got some mixed feelings on there. And I went ahead and I updated my Joe Biden PTR for everyone on uh, Susan's request. So um, up next... Uh, we have Miss Maggie Wilson. She's the first black female cannabis sommelier, also the author of the Metaphysical Cannabis Oracle Deck, and known by the Wu-Tang Clan as the healer. Maggie, what do you have for us today? Hello, everyone. Thank you for that amazing intro, Nicole. Uh, good morning, everyone. Happy Friday and happy Black Future Month. Thanks to Kanye now. Uh, my story today comes from normal.org out of Sao Paulo, Brazil. Study cannabis use associated with better quality of life outcomes. Cannabis consumers report better mental health and quality of life outcomes than do non-users, according to data published in the Journal of Psychiatric Research. Um, I'm pretty sure we've all figured this out, but this is great uh, information. Brazilian investigators surveyed a convenient sample of 7,491 self-identified marijuana consumers and 839 non-users. Participants' responses were scored using standardized scales to assess anxiety, depression, quality of life, and subjective well-being. Those respondents who identified as regular but not problematic users of cannabis scored highest on the scales, followed by more occasional consumers. Both groups scored higher on the scales than did those who abstained from marijuana. Those studies who those subjects who perceived their cannabis use to be problematic scored lowest on the scales. Uh, quote, even after controlling for possible confounders such as demographics and the use of other psychoactive drugs, occasional or habitual self-perception of cannabis use remained associated with better qualities of life and mental health, the authors concluded. They added, the results obtained in this uh, obtained in this study are particularly relevant because they were obtained from a sample predominantly composed of habitual cannabis users from the general population, a group less frequently represented in other studies. Except for self-perceived dysfunctional cannabis use, the association between cannabis use with an increased risk of adverse health outcomes was not observed in the present study. It is possible that these adverse outcomes generally described in many other studies may be due to publication bias or the fact that other studies uh, or the fact that our uh, survey data collection strategy predominantly targeted recreational cannabis users. I think this is absolutely great that we have more information that's coming forward that this plant is and does improve our quality of life. Uh, I'm sure that everyone agrees and if not I'd love to hear <laughs> I'd love to hear the devil's advocate on this. Well, no, I, I think this study confirms what many stoners have long suspected, which is that cannabis euphoria results in the pursuit of happiness and increased quality of life. I just want to say the guy in that picture, his name is definitely Chad. Yeah, wanna, he bought his weed at Whole Foods. I want I, to say how productive he is looking and happy as compared to Cheech and Chong that we just talked about the stone. Cheech, so I'm going to take this as a positive. Cheech, Chong, and Chad. Omar, I love, the, I love that side effect, euphoria. That's my favorite yeah. side effect. Yeah, that's all I wanted to add, too, is like we give pharma, you know, like if someone's like, oh, I want to treat depression or I want to treat anxiety, you're like, okay, like we'll give you pharmaceuticals, but there's still stigma. I don't know. I like love this evidence and totally agree. It just confirms what we already know if you use it. I want to mention that working with cancer patients, I discovered that that euphoria is actually very important and beneficial in some of the memory production and helping them get through a lot of the challenges with the treatment. Yeah. Proven. It's also, it's, all, it's also a decent HBO show. <laughs> decent? I was going to say the forgetting. What show? What shows that? What shows that? Re- euphoria. You know you love Zendaya, Rico. That, that show is lame. Is it Zendaya or Zendaya? I'm from the South. It's whatever I want. Ooh. <laughs> All right. Let's keep smoking the news. Yeah. <laughs> She's known to some as Captain Planet after smoking herb on five continents while doing good environmental deeds like sparking up a fatty at the South Pole post-radioactive waste cleanup. Currently reporting from Provincetown, the cannabis, gay, artist, beach, act- activation, and vacation mecca located on just the tip of Cape Cod. Up next is Anna Mead. What you got for us, Anna? 
Thank you, Rico, for that great introduction. And good morning, team. Happy Friday. My news comes out of Filter Magazine by Shalene Title. We can still stop the cannabis monopolies. If you think two or three powerful companies owning and controlling the sale of all regulated cannabis sounds like a good thing, you need to smoke better weed. But if the thought of a market controlled by Amazon or Cooper is unsettling, I want to introduce to you a valuable concept, antitrust laws. What are antitrust laws and why should you care? In short, when we lived in a different Gilded Age, when oil tycoon John Rockefeller rocked a top hat as opposed to Jeff Bezos wearing a space helmet, our government addressed rising inequality by creating laws to prevent monopolies. Corporate influence has decimated these laws, but the basic objective remains to protect the process of competition for the benefit of consumers. As the power grab heats up, consumers and patients need antitrust protection. By applying antitrust laws to all federal cannabis reform, we can avoid the creation of national monopolies and create a diverse and fairer market instead. Big tobacco and alcohol companies are making noise, and even larger conglomerates are openly champing at the bit. But if you listen to them, you might think it's a foregone conclusion that cannabis has to end up like so many other industries where the large three or four firms control 90% of the market. Nothing is a foregone conclusion. The future of federal legalization is up for grabs. No piece of legislation has made it to a vote in both chambers of commerce. As Politico noted, big weed hasn't been particularly effective despite big spend and big names like John Boner. Instead of relying on profiteers, we can stick to the roots of our movement, the people. This moment calls for united effort to preemptively crack down on national cannabis monopolies. Instead of entrenching oligopoly-style markets, we can put consumers, patients, workers, and small businesses first. We don't need to start from scratch. Cannabis regulation may be new, but regulation isn't. Neither are antitrust laws that lead to more competition, better wages, and innovation. When regulators have actively enforced these laws, they've been able to rein in corporate excess and encourage a more diverse marketplace. But when enforcement is lax, such as big techs, concentration of wealth and power can accumulate rapidly. Prohibiting vertical integration is one method used. It is often cited as the reason the alcohol is not as concentrated as others in the beer industry, the largest three firms contain, control only 75% of the market and craft brands have a chance. To promote broader market access, many states limit licenses that one entity may hold and federal limits should reinforce that. The proposed Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act takes a step in the right direction with anti-monopoly provisions, prohibiting commercial bribery and uncompensated uncompetitive trade practices, but that is not enough. Congress must also authorize states to continue their existing policies that offer state-level advantages to local and social equity businesses, which are becoming increasingly robust and starting to show results. Many of these programs would otherwise become invalid after federal legalization. But there's an easy fix. By authorizing states to ban or delay interstate commerce, Congress can allow the states with experience to continue their social justice efforts instead of voiding their policies overnight. You may wonder if all this is necessary. Wouldn't federal legalization toss the status quo and create an open and free market to fix that? Unfortunately, no. The legal cannabis market is neither open nor free, and federal legalization does not solve that. This is Anna reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'm going to still say descheduler bust. Uh, yeah. Descheduler yeah. bust. We are uh, at time on that. I'm so sorry. We got to jump to the next correspondent. Anna, that is a great headline and something we definitely want to dig in a little bit more. Um, up next, we've got Guy Record. Guy is a legacy legend turned legal. The connoisseur cloud puffing co-founder and CEO of Papa and Barkley. Well, what do you have for us today, Big Papa? Thank you, Nicole. Good morning, Rico. Good morning, Susan. Uh, today, my headline comes from uh, cannabis TV news, uh, and the headline reads: Thousands of kilograms are thousands of kilograms of cannabis are being seized at the border. Essentially, since 2017 to 2018, 11,800 kilograms of cannabis were seized at the border. But in 2021, in 2020 to 2021. Um, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. In uh, 2017, 2018, 500 kilograms were seized, but in 20, 
2020 to 2021, 11,800 kilograms were seized, a 2,000% increase. Uh, why? Well, some of it is interstate um some of it is uh, DTC commerce due to the pandemic, so there's a lot more online traffic. But interestingly enough, in the article, they state that 80% of the cannabis seized at the border is actually voluntarily turned over when they ask you that question, are you carrying any cannabis, at which point it is turned over and we don't know how it's dis- disposed of or what happens to it. And if you don't disclose it and they find it, they can levy a pretty uh, significant fine, although it didn't talk about people being arrested at that at the border. Most of it is coming from the U.S., coming into Canada, not the other way around. Um, and they're saying that uh, that $43.5 billion of the country's gross national product is associated with, is, is, is the, the country's GPA, but $13.3 billion has been uh, given to Ontario since legal use for recreation started back in um 2000, I'm sorry, it doesn't say what year it was, but I believe Canada legalized in 2018. So federally legalized, only the second nation after Uruguay to federally legalize and the first G7 nation to legalize. So essentially what, what they're having, what's happening here is there's a ton of illicit cannabis, both black market, which they still have a problem with in Canada because their prices still remain too high. George Stitherman, the CEO of the Cannabis Council, Cannabis Council of Canada said legalization has created a sense of immunity in the black market. And we certainly have products that are being sold online and staying within Canada and that perhaps the data is telling them that online sources outside of Canada are being tapped in a similar way. Long and short of it is there's a ton of Canadian cannabis that is being illegally trafficked in Canada we're sending them a bunch of products, typically online. People are bringing cannabis products across the border. And I think this all goes to speak to we need some better reforms as it relates to interstate commerce. Because I think what happens is our products here in, Ca- in California are cheaper to make and therefore easier to get across the border. They're more sought after. What this article doesn't talk about is that manufactured goods are not fully deployed in in, in Canada, so they don't get the same level of concentrates. They definitely don't get the same quality and variety of edibles. And so all those products are the kinds of products that are being uh, fashioned and sent over the border. This is not flour. There's a great chart in here that shows that flour, in terms of seizure by fiscal year, almost finishes and tails off completely by 2019. But there's a huge spike in cannabis products, which means infused products, gummies, edibles, those typical things. So um, interesting article in terms of just like more like weird propaganda. I was kind of like concerned that, you know, somebody that's CEO of something called the Canadian Cannabis Council would say things like we need to not support you know, or that there's an immunity in the black market. Yeah. Interesting article. I'm interested to see how people think about, you know, is there something to do here? How can we start to work with Canada to start to send them our products? Because those, you know, super grows with all that carbon footprint is also part of their problem. Anyway, this is Guy Rocourt reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. We just have time for a quick booth statement from Jason. Yeah, their real problem is that they grow nothing but booth in Canada. <laughs> it's true. And powdery mildew. And powdery mildew. Powder yes, mildew indeed. is, is so, a subvarietal of booth. Bro science. So it's Black History Month, and I'd be remiss not mentioning Shaquille O'Neal once played John Henry Irons, the black Superman in a terrible movie most forgot about. But our next correspondent and our very own Clark Kent isn't terrible or black. He's a communication strategist and publisher at the American Cannabis Report, and his name is Christopher Smith. What you got for us this morning, Superman? <laughs> I'm going to put that on my business card, not terrible or black. Uh, good morning. <laughs> good morning, Rico, Nicole, and Susan. I'm going back to my home state of Connecticut to dig up a little dirt. My headline today is from MJ Biz Daily. Connecticut's $3 million fee for social equity cannabis grower permits raises obstacles and eyebrows. Before we go any further, this headline's a little funky. The cost for such a license to a social equity applicant is only $1.5 million. I'll explain that in just a second, but this doesn't change the point of the article, which is that this social equity license is, quote, believed to be by far the highest social equity fee applicants faced in the U.S. marijuana industry. Okay, so uh, uh, the 
quote from the article is, Connecticut opened the window Thursday to social equity applicants seeking to build and operate cannabis cultivation facilities totaling up to 250,000 square feet as part of the state's upcoming adult use market. But there's a huge catch. The Sticker uh, sticker cost, I guess, for the licensing fee is $3 million, uh, noted Michelle Bodian, a senior associate attorney at Vincent Sater, uh, Vicente Saderberg uh, Law Firm. Uh, Connecticut's social equity program is being lauded as uh, by some as, quote, one of the best in the country in terms of promoting greater participation among minority entrepreneurs and individuals affected by the war on drugs. So I've, re- I've reported on my home state before. Uh, it has many, many good qualities, but social equity ain't one. And as a uh, cannabis license, it costs a social equity applicant $1.5 million just for the fee. I think it demonstrates exactly how the game is rigged in Connecticut. So part of the social equity program there is very positive. There's a major section on redressing the harms caused by prohibition and unequal enforcement. The department reserves 50% of applications for social equity applicants, and social equity applicants receive a 50% reduction in license fees for the first three renewal cycles. But here's the tight box that they draw around the social equity applicants themselves, the individuals. Social equity applicants defined as at least 65% owned and controlled by one and more individuals who live in disproportionately impacted area for at least for five of the past 10 years of their lives or nine of the first 17. Um, so a disproportionately impacted area is a census tract that either has an unemployment rate of over 10% or has more than 10% rate of drug arrests over the past 40 years. So it's an area of endemic poverty. And the social equity applicant must have an income level that is equates to $113,000. So, you know, middle to, you know, not, not terrible. Um, but the presumption that's buried here is that the only type of suffering they'll consider is financial suffering. If you make too much money, how can you say you've actually suffered? And it equates the level of suffering with your census tract. So if your neighborhood has only 8% unemployment or you live one street over outside the tract, you haven't suffered enough, says Connecticut. So no other torments by law enforcement, unfair allocation of tax funds for poor education, lack of access to banking services, food desert areas, none of that counts in, in Connecticut as a social equity. And all of that, uh, by the way, the, so the person who is supposed to be a 65% owner of a multi-million dollar company that can afford a $1.5 million application fee before any other costs. So it's just an incredibly narrow uh, uh, a needle to thread. I just don't think it's going to be possible. And I think that it really highlights um, how they've made social equity look good, but virtually impossible to execute. Thank you so much for that headline, Christopher. We are super strapped for time right now. So we're going to go ahead and hop on that one, but definitely a conversation we continue every day, it feels like, and something that we need to bring up again and again and again. And up next, we have Omar Figueroa, the founder of the law firm focusing on transactional cannabis law, director of the National Cannabis uh, Industry Association, legal publisher and author of The Gongier, and my absolute favorite person to quote and throw his legal blogs at. What do you have for us today, Omar? Happy Friday, everyone. My story is from the Cornell Chronicle by Caitlin Ruff. And the headline is, Nolan School alumni co-found local cannabis company. Two graduates of the Cornell Nolan School of Hotel Administration have co-founded a research-based cannabis company in Ithaca, which they hope will expand into one of upstate New York's first boutique cannabis hotels. Cameron Scott and Jeremiah Swain, co-founders of Eighth Wonder Cannabis Company, hope to pioneer a new approach to hospitality and make social change at the same time. Quote, the majority of the, industri- of the industry is white male dominated, while most of those imprisoned are people who look like me, end quote, said Swain, chief executive officer who has a bachelor's degree in finance from Morehouse College and an associate degree from the Culinary Institute of America. There haven't been overt efforts to destigmatize the cannabis industry, he said, but I think our success will help us move in that direction. The scale of the problem is substantial, but I do see that we can play an important role in addressing racial equity. Uh, The pair, I'm going to fast forward, the pair plan to leverage Cornell research to cultivate high-quality cannabis. In September 2021, Cornell became the nation's only industrial hemp germplasm repository, a seed bank at Cornell Agritech in Geneva, New York. 
the seed bank enables researchers to identify pest-resistant and disease-resistant genes, giving them the tools to breed new varieties. And since it is in the public domain, anyone can get the information and seeds for free, a professor who helped the pair uh, said. So we're working on how to help farmers and producers. Do they have wet soil? Are they having problems with pests? That, that's uh, Omar Figueroa. My uh, article is Gangie from Sonoma County for the State of Cannabis New York. Thank you so much, Omar. Sorry to, to cut you off. We've got some breaking news. We need to end the show. Uh, Gretchen, 10 seconds. Uh, breaking news that the American Competes Act has passed in the House, which means good old safe banking is going back to the Senate for a sixth time to be killed by Chuck Schumer shortly. <laughs> Yay! Kill safe banking! Safe banking! Kill safe banking! Zombie safe banking! Kill safe banking! It's a social equity bill. <laughs> <laughs> what a way! What a way! What a way to end the show! What a way to end the week! That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that come through all of the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Nicole and Rico for co-producing the show and our pinup girl Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and our ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. Have a great weekend, everybody. Nicole, can we get that heady boy's voice one more time? You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Your Daily Dose. Say goodbye, Rico. And happy birthday to Lara DeCaro. Oh, goodbye. stop. <laughs> goodbye. Dude, where's my bong? <laughs>